0: The breakdown of the nuclear family seems to be at the heart of the conversation with school shootings and everything that happened in Texas. Mo Brooks came under fire, and as did I on News and Views with Joey Clark last Friday about bringing up what seemed like an obvious answer that maybe some of the moral decline comes from the fact that the the family's falling apart. So we have Pastor Rich Lusk in to talk about that from a biblical, theological, and cultural standpoint You're not going to want to miss out. You're being lied to more than any generation in the history of the world. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy.
1: We want to have good journalism that lasts.
0: Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in and joining us. I'm Brian Dawson, the host of the podcast and CEO of 1819 News Joined by my stellar co-host, Mr. Ray
1: Mellick, who's the editor in chief here. Ray, how you doing? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Man, tremendous. Summer's here, so yeah. uh, it's hot, it's humid, and it's Alabama. It is,
0: I, and it's weird. Usually, there's you know not a spring and not a fall. It seems like it's been good this year. Um, where I so I sit on my front porch a lot, and I've been able to do that for more than a week yeah. straight. So that yeah. means that spring was long, and I did yeah. it last fall too. So that was good. Once the humidity picks up, it's over there. I can take the heat. I can't do the humidity. Anyway, we're just complaining. Yeah, now. So, so that's
1: and that's the weather for today. Yeah. Yeah. You guys didn't know we did weather,
0: did you? So, um, yeah, and as anyone viewing can see, we have a guest in studio, as we usually do. Uh, we've got uh, Pastor Rich Lusk, who's the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. Uh, he's also uh, planted Trinity Reform Church in Huntsville. Uh, so he's very active uh, in uh, church things in Alabama. Uh, he's also been married to his wife for over 20 years and has four children. And so um, I've known him for about a year, year and a half-ish, um, and, and have just been really uh, blown away by his insight as it pertains to um, the church and the culture, and specifically the church and the family, and how those things are supposed to interrelate with that third sphere of government, which is the the, the civil sphere. Um and as you guys may have heard Mo Brooks has said some comments that have brought him under fire and so we're going to touch on those through the lens of a pastor who kind of specializes in that space. Um but before we do that, we got to tell you where you can find us, right? We got to do that every time. So in case you stumbled upon us and want to know where you can go to subscribe, you can go to Apple Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, go there, um subscribe, click the bell. That way you're getting notifications when there's new episodes. Uh, leave a five-star review uh, tell everyone how much you love the podcast because we know you do and most important the most important thing you guys can do for us we're always asked what can we do for you guys we love what you're doing we want to contribute go to 1819news.com and click on that red button that says subscribe click it we're not going to charge you anything doesn't cost you any money we're not going to sell your information just put your email address in there and we bring you the daily newsletter to your inbox every single morning at 7:45. It's like the newspaper getting thrown on your front steps. All the news you need, all the opinions that matter, and all the podcasts we've produced um, delivered to your inbox. So you grab a cup of coffee, get informed.
1: It's uh, yeah, daily news, uh, six days a week for the the whole covering the whole state. Uh, yeah. Really, has taken off. We got a, a an expanding staff all the time, and people are giving uh, really getting uh, a lot out of it. I hear a lot everywhere I travel, so yeah. we're excited. And we've had some
0: some just great articles, if I don't say so myself, yeah. right? Um, but Lauren Walsh has been putting out some really incredible stuff um, regarding inflation. Um, the formula shortage, and it's not just talking about it plainly, but really digging into it and doing deep dives. The stuff, uh, the VA, the the VA in Birmingham, uh, essentially denying people's uh, exemption, exemptions. religious exemption,
1: or medical exemption, even for uh, vaccination. Yeah, up uh, to like fifty nurses. Yeah, and one doctor. So yeah. uh, it's really significant, if you know. And 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 really, it's almost we're way off topic here. Go but for it. It's really off. Uh, it, it, antiquated information. You know, there yeah. was a year ago you could argue, okay, vaccinations, hospital, that's great. But we're at a point now where almost everybody realizes the vaccines are not really, I mean, they're good to mitigate, but they're not stopping you from getting COVID. They're yeah. not stopping you from spreading COVID. Uh, and they're not really always as good as they're cracked up to be. And so for, for the medical profession to be insisting that these nurses uh, have this or else face possible termination for their job is really kind of a authoritarian approach that almost seems outdated given what we now know about COVIDs and vaccines.
2: A little little strange to not let nurses make their own medical decisions. It
1: it is. And even doctors in some cases. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's wild. And then on top of that, the fact that they're already short staffed, that they'd be willing to terminate 50 nurses and they're already short staffed. So. Crazy time to be alive, and that's why we're here, making sure you have all that information so you know just how crazy it really is. I'm going to throw a plug for last
1: week with Dr. Jordan Vaughn in here because we really discussed the vaccines and and the concerned doctors of Alabama, and they've been on the forefront of just trying to say, let's look at, let's people say follow the science, let's look at the science and follow that, and I think that's even more relevant in light of what's going on at the VA.
0: Yep. Did I welcome you in, Rich? I know I gave a little bit of a bio, but welcome. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be here. My hospitality is terrible
2: appreciate what you guys are doing I'm with 1819. <laughs> well thanks.
0: Yeah. Thank you Rich. Um and uh, they we are <clears throat> very popular at, at Trinity Presbyterian Church. I went and worshiped there, and uh, I came in, and um, they were waving palm trees and stuff. And, <laughs> no, maybe not that, but it was. Um, they they have a very in tune, engaged. Lightning strike. We, we yeah, do we love do. what you guys are doing. We do. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. Uh, it did. It threw me off. Um, I, I don't. I don't even think you were there that Sunday, but I came in, and someone in Sunday school had brought the 1819 magazine in, and we're talking about it. It just so happened that I was there that Sunday. And so the timing of it, they're like, "Oh wow, it's the guy from the magazine." And so it was, a, it was a warm welcome. But why well, do you um, plug
2: your stuff a lot? Good, we appreciate it. Yeah, good.
0: we love good. it. Well, that is uh, <clears throat> good stuff. So what we want to get into today, specifically, um, I just thought we were going to talk about this anyway, but um, Mo Brooks really brought it into the forefront of the conversation, and um, and so. Um, and I actually talked about it with, uh, Joey Clark on news and views last Friday before really Mo Brooks came into it, but it's specifically the, the school shooting is on the forefront of everyone's mind right now with everything that's going on. How can this happen? How does this continue to happen? You know, obviously one side wants to blame the guns and then we get caricatured as, you know, loving guns more than children, uh, and all these different things. But the, the, the point that really brought Mo under fire is he had, the nerve to say that, you know, maybe, you know, specifically, cause he comes from a day and age when they used to go to school with a shotgun in their, their, their gun rack and everybody else did as well. And there was no school shootings. So what is it that's causing it to be where that's such a problem now? And he had the audacity to say that maybe it's the breakdown of the the nuclear family. Maybe it's the fact that this institution that God created to teach values um and to you know train children up in a certain way uh maybe the fact that it's been under attack and that it's all but you know been disregarded by our government and everything yeah. else
1: from within as well as without that's yeah. that's an issue too that we've, we've broken down the family because we made it too easy for families to dissolve
0: yeah that's that's what i said that got me in trouble on the radio yeah. was that exact point and so you know is drilling down to this no-fault divorce situation um and it was really good though we had a really lively conversation the phone's lit up Joey did a really good job uh, of navigating that I got into a couple arguments on the radio but you know that'll happen Uh and and so but but really that is you know you, you start to 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 hone in and we'll get into Moe's specific
2: comments um here in a second but um well and I would say the breakdown of the family it's also the failure of families to form and yeah. mm. you know you you made the point about guns you know is is that the issue uh, and I think when something like this happens, you've got so many people who are looking for a quick fix,
0: yeah, some right. some
2: immediate solution. And there's not a quick fix. Mm. Uh, the kinds of things that are happening, and of course, school shootings is just one of dozens of symptoms we could point to. But this is a symptom of a sick society. And so uh, it's really not about the guns. Uh, in fact, one thing that I think is interesting to consider is the fact that the rate of gun ownership in America has remained very steady since uh, say, the early 1970s to today. So if we had just as many guns then as we do now, and back then we weren't having the school shootings that we have now, uh, you have to ask, well, okay, what else could it be? What else has changed between then and now? And the breakdown of the family is a huge part of it, and that's what I think Mo Brooks was identifying. That's and exactly he's, right. He's exactly right about that. Now, I think you can drill down deeper than that, and I think we'll get to that here in just a bit, but certainly the breakdown of the family has a lot to do with this with this problem.
0: Absolutely um and so specifically you know in 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 it was how do i uh hide my disdain for fox news uh at least that particular journalist you know she was digging down are you blaming single mothers are you blaming single families and it's like no that's that's not what he's doing he's just saying that you know and i think i think the the mix-up and i think we really need to 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 um spend some time on this is is rules and exceptions okay For whatever reason, rules and exceptions is a nuance that human beings, specifically angry, politically active human beings, have a problem with this rule and rule and exception nuance. Ben Carson's mom was the exception. Okay, she was a single mom. She raised boys. The boys grew up to be healthy. She made them read even though she couldn't read. They you know, he came in to be like the greatest neurosurgeon uh, in history. And and so but that's not the rule. That's the exception. Right. And so. So if, if that was the rule, then Dr. Ben Carson would have divorced his wife and left her with their kids and said, I want them to be neurosurgeons. So I'm leaving. Yeah, That would be the rule. And we know that that sounds silly and stupid because it's silly and stupid to pretend that the rule is the exception and the exception is the rule. And we shouldn't base public policy or culture shaping based off exceptions because there are absolutely single moms out there that are doing a great job, but that's the exception to the rule overall. And what Mo said was let's look at the statistics overwhelmingly. Children who live in, and I'm, I'm very much that statistic, uh, who grow up in a, in a broken home where there was divorce, where there was, you know, that situation, overwhelmingly, they do not end up as healthy as children who grew up in nuclear families. And that's not to say, too, that just because you grew up with a mom and dad doesn't mean you can't screw up. But it's saying overwhelmingly the statistics point us to to that.
1: And I think, and and you may be able to help me with this. I think I don't think that's an economic issue. I think whether you're the, the from a wealthy uh, upper income or a lower income background, I think that part holds true across economic lines. It's not just true. oh, you're taking shots at poor people here.
2: Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, you're exactly right. So, so I think what Mo Brooks was getting at. These are the patterns. These are the trends, as you yeah. said. The statistics bear this out. That, uh, and it's very obvious. Uh, children flourish most when they have a mom and dad who love each other and are therefore married, and who love them. And there's no, there's no substitute for that. There's no replacement. There's no alternative. I think. I think part of what's happened. So if you if you rewind and you ask, okay, so what started to happen? Uh, you know, 1960s, 1970s, when you really start to see family breakdown uh, occur. It's really two things I think stand out. One is the sexual revolution, which detached sex from marriage, mm-hmm. uh, detached detached sex from uh, procreation, uh, and this, you know, this has to do with the pill and just obviously changing uh, social views about sexuality. And you also have the rise of the welfare state that actually subsidized, financially subsidized, the breakdown of the family. And uh, the, the so so the family has had enemies from within and from without. But if you ask what has really changed, what has really happened in our society, those are the two biggest things that I would point to, and I would say these are massive changes that took place that have uh, led to the situation we're in. We're now over half of the children born in the U.S. Uh, are born out of wedlock. Uh, it does not matter. What other things might be true about a society? When that is the case, you cannot have a healthy, functioning society when you have that kind of uh, family breakdown or the failure of families to form where they should.
0: Explain theologically. So again, you being a pastor, just like last week we had Jordan come in as a doctor to tell us, you know, from that standpoint, what what is it about the family that makes it? You know, if, if 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 we're having children out of wedlock at a at a fifty percent plus rate, why is that theologically? Why is that biblically? Um, keep a society from flourishing.
2: Yeah, I think I think for too often, uh, too often now we have treated marriage and family as a social construct, yeah. uh, as a, a structure that you can take or leave. Yeah, when actually it's built into the very fabric of reality and our false ideologies cannot overcome the way God made the world. We can Mm. fight against the way God made the world, but (laughs) that's not going to work very well. We're always going to end up on the losing side of that battle, and that's really what you're seeing. Uh, When we fight against the way God made the world, uh, bad things happen, and that's what we're doing. So it's very obvious from scripture, from just observing the creation, basic human biology. Uh, It takes a man and a woman to create a child. A man and woman are both vested in that particular child they have created that child has a connection with those two people the mom and the dad and the parents who have created this child have an obligation to that child that child has a right to both of his parents and i think one thing that has happened in our society especially over the last you know say 50 plus years is we have started to put adult desires over what is best for children. Mm. We have put adult desires over and above children's needs. And so it's the children who suffer most. And then the, the outcome of that is children will do uh, rebellious things. Uh, and they may school, you know, shoot up a school or it may not be something that's that extreme. But that, that's what happens because uh, there's a void there uh, left by the um, often that's, that's, the lack of the father that that's really what we're talking about more than anything else here is fatherlessness, because that's how yeah. it's played itself out in our culture. And so we have outsourced far too many family functions. Uh, we have, uh, basically made men expendable and now we're seeing the social consequences of that, the bad fruit that that bears.
0: mm
1: You know, I asked uh, Brian this before. It's something I've done, uh, got into a discussion years ago. But we were talking about what is the single most impactful invention, if you will, of the 20th century. And you can talk about the Internet, nuclear bomb, whatever. And I thought it's birth control pills. Mm -hmm. It completely changed societal uh, relations, uh, birth rates among different groups of people. And you know, it just really had a revolutionary effect that I think that people don't understand just how far that went. And it's sort of what you're talking well,
2: about. Well, yeah, yeah. So the pill led people to think that they could have sex without consequence, right. which is not true. That, that's yeah. simply not true. Uh, but but what's happened now, and you see this in the abortion debate, um, women who get pregnant, who've lived, you know, who are sexually promiscuous and they get pregnant, act like this is something that just happened. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you know, I don't know how, you know, but I just ended up pregnant. Uh, and I shouldn't be punished for that, you know. Well, the actions have consequences, and, and sexual activity results in children. That's its design. And uh, so anytime you you go against the— and I'm not saying here that all forms of birth control or anything like that would be unlawful. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to make that claim. Um, but the but bill, used correctly yeah, I mean, within the,
1: the context, yeah.
2: With respect for marriage and respect for God's design, there you could maybe make an argument that there, there would be lawful uses of birth control. I mean, that'd be another discussion. But uh, the point is— it has changed the way people in our society view sex uh, the, and, and, and and that's had um, incredibly far-reaching uh, ramifications and so uh, yeah that, that's a huge part of what you're seeing here is the sexual revolution play itself out and people thought, oh you know the pill means that we can have sexual liberation and mm-hmm. sexual freedom Well actually no what's happened is a new kind of enslavement really. Mm-hmm.
0: And you track that back even farther um, and you look at, you know, the origins of the pill and the feminist movement. And that, that's always been the burden that no feminist could ever figure out. And that's why it ends in the slaughter of children is that, you know, um, women want to be egalitarian in the sense of they want to be the same as men. Well, God, that was not God's design. God made men, men, and he made women, women. And he gave certain roles and responsibilities for men. He gave certain roles and responsibilities for women. Again, rules and exceptions. Are there women that are stronger? Are there some women that are stronger than some men? Sure. Are there, you know, are there, you know, um, some men who might be more nurturing than some women? Sure. But that's not that's that's the exception. It's not the rule, right? And so, uh, in God's design, He's created men to do the things that men are supposed to do, and the things women uh, to do the the things that women are supposed to do. And there's a covetousness that, that that happens in feminism that they. Um, do not like the role that God has given them. They want to do what the man is doing and they found themselves able to administrate in business as well, maybe even lead in business as well uh, and do all these other things, or at least the appearance of, and if they just didn't have these pesky children holding them down or not even the pesky children, but the potential of pesky children holding them down, they could be stronger than men. If only, you know, not for this uterus and, you know, getting pregnant. And so, Um, that, that, that is where the, the birth control movement came from. It's where abortion came from. It's where, you know, at least in, in in this last wave of feminism and and really the the last three waves of feminism is, is in that goal for women to be men. And the thing, and it's just like, we're now saying that boys can be girls and girls can be boys in this weird trans, whatever that's going on. It's that same kind of, um, what was the, the term you just used it? A social construct, we think that gender is a social construct. Right, right. We think that sexuality is a social construct, all these things. And so we're trying to reverse these things that God said, this is, this is. And, we, and we're and we saying, no, it isn't, and watch us try. And it's like jumping out of a plane and saying gravity isn't. Well, good luck.
2: Yeah, you're, you're right about that. And you mentioned abortion. It is really interesting to see how the rhetoric around abortion has shifted in recent years, how it is now all about justice. You know, reproductive justice is the terminology. <laughs> Everything's used. justice and uh equality yeah that in order for women to be equal with men and by that they mean be able to pursue say a career the way a man does abortion has to be an option because being the sex that bears the child would put her at a disadvantage professionally and that's what's what it's about and now i've even seen especially since there's this threat that roe might be overturned and get thrown back to the states uh people touting the economic benefits of abortion, how much it would cost us economically if abortion was outlawed. Well, uh, there's just all kinds of problems with that. But um, one thing we need to recognize is that, yes, this does go back to confusion and rebellion against God's design for men and women, God's design for marriage, God's design for the family and children. And, again, we're seeing the bad fruits of that borne out. And it's not just that women have become masculinized. You've also got to deal with the fact that men have become feminized so we we have this this gender confusion and i think particularly with men if you know if you ask well what what is what is the what is the calling of the man what's really the essence of of manhood and the man's role is to be a protector and provider Uh, and you can go back to the early chapters of genesis and see this in fact one thing that's really interesting to me uh, I, you know, man and woman are both made in the image of God in Genesis 1, that's clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but the man's made first, then the woman. He's given a mission, then he's given marriage, and, and I think that's that's significant in and of itself. Uh, when they fall into sin, there are sex-specific curses. The curses did not fall on the human race as if we were androgynous. Men and women, just interchangeable cogs in a machine. There's, there are sex-specific curses. And, of course, later in Scripture, there are sex-specific commands, Uh, You know, commands given to men to do this, commands given to women to do that. And, of course, all that's complementary. That's all part of God's design. But you cannot have, if if you have a crisis, say, in femininity, you're going to have a corresponding crisis in masculinity. It's not like one sex can stay on track while the other does not. The Mm -hmm. sexes stand or fall Mm -hmm. together. This is one of the problems with any kind of identity politics when it comes to the sexes. You know, they'll break out now how men and women vote so differently. Uh, as if we're pitted against one another politically. Well, no wonder we can't get along. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're thinking of our, of our sex as an identity group you know, with special interests set over against the other sex. Um, this is a question that I've, I've asked my kids before, just a hypothetical thing. Is there any uh, law that could be passed, any policy the government could adopt that would be good for me and bad for your mom? Or good for your mom and bad for me, and the reality is, no, there's not because we're so un- we're one, we're united. Anything that's good for her is good for me. If it's good for me, it's good for her. So the the very fa- so one way that you see this, you know, so-called war between the sexes, which is another thing we've seen play out hmm. really since the '60s, is politically in voting patterns. Mm-hmm. Different men and women vote, and we, we've been pitted against each other in all kinds of ways. And I think that this, this has to do with the fact that uh, again, women have been masculinized, men have been feminized, and uh, and that's just created all kinds of problems for us. So many places to go on that. Um,
1: Ray. And we are sitting here as three guys talking about this. You know, somebody's going to be screaming at the, at the podcast right now, well, you don't have a woman's point of view. But I think that's also part of the problem is to, to feel like I can't look into other situations as you have and say, well, here's, here's the manual. Here's the, here, here's the way it was designed to work. I can comment on that as much as you can comment in the reverse. And somehow we feel like you can't do that if you're not experiencing what the other person goes through.
0: Yeah. And I think that is a huge challenge and it's, and it's, and it's silly and it's foolishness and it's, it's a play by the, the, the left essentially is, well, you can't talk about abortion if you don't have a uterus. And then, you know, five minutes later, men can be women.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, A lot lot of contradictions.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, it's interesting. I saw where, uh, you know, they were screaming. Well, if you outlaw abortion, abortions will happen illegally. But if we outlaw guns, we're going to stop gun violence.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. the,
1: the concepts are, are completely, but they don't see the connections in the yeah. concepts. Well, and
2: and them. and one thing that I think is interesting to look at is in biblical passages like Romans one or Ephesians four, how it it, it Paul describes for us the thinking of. Uh, fallen man, mm-hmm. and how his uh, mind has been darkened, uh, his heart has become foolish. Uh, so th- there's a very real sense in which, when you rebel against God, you go insane. You're out of touch with reality, and so you adopt ideas and ideologies and and practices in your life that are totally contrary to what would be best for you, what would be most conducive to your thriving. Uh, and you might say it's all good. You know, you're calling evil good. That's your spiritual blindness. And that really, you know, so I, I think Mo Brooks was right to camp out on the family as, you know, what, what has happened and why, why are we seeing things like these school shootings and that kind of thing. I think the breakdown of the family is, is the single biggest social factor in all of that. Uh, you know, if you control for fatherlessness, you know, if you want to look at problems like crime, uh, drug addiction, uh, dropping out of school, uh, sexual promiscuity. You can just list one Suicide. social problem. Suicide. You can, you can just go down the list yeah. of social problems. The one common factor, more than race, socioe- socioeconomics, anything else, the one common factor is fatherlessness that accounts for all of that, which means that if you wanted to you – could, you could solve all of those problems. I don't mean absolutely, but you could you could do a great deal of healing with all of those problems by doing one thing, and that is getting fathers back in the home, intact marriages – uh lowering the rate of out of wedlock births, all of that. that. That that would be the one thing that would would greatly ameliorate all of those social crises. But I think you can drill even deeper down into this problem because it's not just a social problem, it's ultimately a spiritual problem. Yeah. There is no secular solution. I mean you had a pastor on today, so you knew you were yeah. gonna get you knew yeah. you're gonna get to the gospel sooner no. or later, right? There is no secular solution to the the things that ail our society. And so long as we keep looking for Secular solutions, political solutions, uh, mental health counseling solutions, educational solutions, we are not going to find solutions. The solution is found one place, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who can rescue us from our sins, who can give us his Holy Spirit to transform the way we live our lives, who can restore us so we can live out that creational design. Mm.
0: I love uh, the, the Carl Sagan, we'll tr- will follow the truth wherever it leads, except for the truth, except for where it leads. <laughs> Yeah, those are the, <laughs> we'll follow the truth wherever it leads, except where it actually leads, and that's the one thing about secularists is they they put this huge facade that they're that they're searching everywhere, and that and it's like yeah, but there's one place where it actually is, and you guys won't go anywhere near that with a ten foot pole.
1: You know, there's one thing, and yeah. I'm backing up a little bit, but I think it's also important uh, that you brought up that we created a society that's rewarding women to have children outside of marriage by by financing and economically supporting them. And again, in the beginning, it was a good idea. It was saying, hey, here's women. There's no man in there to help. We need to help. But it becomes a, from a small group that we're helping to suddenly a universal expectation of rights that uh, loses its original purpose. And I know in the church, we, we, all of us face that. I want to help somebody. But when does that helping begin to hurt them because they become mm-hmm. reliant mm-hmm. upon my help instead of helping them to become
2: self-sufficient? Right. And when can we help people in a way that would help them fulfill God's design rather than subsidize rebellion against that design? You always Mm -hmm. get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. And we have subsidized all the wrong things now for a long, long time in our society. And, and, you know, so uh, I, I think a book that does a really wonderful job dealing with a lot of these issues is actually George Gilder's book, Men in Marriage. It's kind of an older book. Uh, but the issues he addresses in that book are still very much with us. Mm. And this is one of the things he talks about is uh, the if men were designed to be protectors and providers, okay, we attack the the man's role as a protector with, say, uh, gun control laws. We're not going to let you protect your own family. Uh, the government will take care of We're going to outsource that now to the government, okay? Well, we've seen, like even with the school yeah. shooting in Texas, Jeez. that doesn't necessarily work very well, <laughs> right. okay? And then the man is provider. Well, okay, uh, For a lot of women, the government can give them a bigger paycheck than their than if they married the man they've had a child with, a bigger paycheck than he could bring home. So, okay, so I'd rather have Uncle Sam as my husband than you. Okay. So then so then you've got that problem. So the man's role as protector and provider has been very much undercut in our society. And I think that's one of the things again we're seeing play out.
1: And I do see young men. It's interesting too because uh, I, almost every young man and and that that grew up without a father or without the father wants to know who his father was, wants some kind of a relationship. Sometimes it might even be to make sure they don't turn out like their father. I, I, right. I have a young a friend whose father abandoned him when they were young, and he got in a situation where he was about to do the same thing. And I said, "You hate your father. Do you want your kids hating you for the same thing?" And it clicked with him and and resolved that situation. So I think it is fascinating, and yet then so many these young men grow up and then lose sight of the fact that I'm becoming exactly what my father did, which is abandon the family or abandon my kids right, and right. going off on my own selfish pursuit. When that's the very thing that it's a cycle that just yeah. doesn't seem to end. Yeah,
2: father hunger is a real thing, yeah. and you're and you're seeing that with with I'd say young men and women in our society, uh, and yeah, it can it can be a really devastating thing. And in fact, I think the social problem, the family, and the spiritual problem are really. in a a deep way related, and that is because God has designed the family. Well, let me put it this way. God has designed the father in the home to be the first picture children have of their heavenly father. And so when the father's absent or cruel, tyrannical, evil, okay, then what happens, okay? They see God that way. And they have a very hard time coming to trust that there could be a good god out there that there could be a heavenly father who really loves them because of this picture they've had and of course the mother plays a huge spiritual role in all this as well uh, not excluding her from that at all but that is something that i think you see and if if you talk to people who you know say came out of a broken home or something like that who are not christians and you seek to evangelize them you realize there's a lot of baggage here that we have to deal with in order for them to get to the point where they could say okay i can trust this God and and a lot of that is because of the family breakdown
1: it is I will say this as Christians it's interesting if you particularly if your kids are smaller ask them describe God and a lot of times what they describe back is the relationship they have with their father mm-hmm. absolutely it, it really absolutely. is impactful yeah. and I've, I've yeah. seen that even in my own family situation with my father and then my my relationship with the kids yeah. but it is an amazing correlation yeah you're, you're and exactly tough to right. overcome if it's a bad you know relationship yeah. yeah
2: yeah and I want to stress too it's not even just having uh, the presence, say, of the father in the child's life. The bedrock of this, the foundation on which this is built, is marriage. Yeah. So children derive a great deal of stability and security from seeing their mom and dad love each other. I know if you're familiar with Katie Faust and her work, Then before us, she was really good work. But one thing she pointed out that I had not seen or not thought about before is that when... Children see their 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 biological mom and dad. When children see their mom and dad love each other, they feel loved by that. And it might be the only time in which you can uh, be loved indirectly. You know, most of the time we're we're being loved directly by somebody. A mom you know loves a child. A father loves a child. But a child actually experiences love when that child sees the mom and the dad love each other. And that's an amazing thing. And I, I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of security and stability. Uh, that is brought into a child's life when a child sees, hey, my mom and dad, they're committed to each other in this covenant of marriage. They're they love each other. There's there's stability. And, you know, you could talk about all kinds of other benefits that come from it. But I think that's a really crucial one.
0: Yeah. I think too, and not to get too deeply theological on it, but, you know, and there's a lot of variations in and, you know, why people baptize kids, why they don't. I'm so I'm definitely not going to travel way too far down that road. But the idea is, you know, no matter whether you do or you don't though, is that Faithfulness and, and marriage and child rearing, you know, produces health and that there's this special thing that's taking place inside of a household. Some people would call it a covenant household. Some people would just call it a Christian home, whatever, whatever label you want to put on it. God is doing something. Um, he has created the family to be a nuclear power plant of culture shaping. And so when you have a society that is full of families that are functioning, not perfectly because that's not possible, um, but faithfully you're producing, you know, faithful children who will go on to have faithful families who will and now all of a sudden you you have this tide of um or maybe critical mass is the word that I'm looking for of of faithfulness and and that is, you know, we had that in our country for a long time and it produced a ton of fruit and then we abandoned that and I think we're we're essentially um you know as we've said multiple times now on the podcast already but experiencing the consequences of it but I think Really realizing that it's not this kind of platonic thing like guy meets girl They have kid kid may or may not turn out. Okay. It's like well, no like There's something special and inherent like God created the institution of the family with a purpose and instructions And we can either obey it or disobey it at our own peril. It's not just this, you know, esoteric thing It's an institution created by God with a purpose um, and then that leads me to the next direction I want to go, unless you guys have anything else on family you wanted to go into.
2: Well, just one other thing. Um, you know, Thomas Sowell has approached these questions from a little bit different perspective um, than I do as a pastor. But he has a lot of interesting things to say. So, for example, one thing he points out, you know, there are people who will blame the breakdown of the uh, black, especially black, urban family on um, racism. And Sowell says the problem with that thesis is that the black family was basically intact up until the 1960s. Divorce rates were very low. Yep. Out of wedlock birth rates were very low, very you know, comparable to, 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 to they, what they were for white families. Uh, so uh, the black family was intact. The black family survived uh, Jim Crow. Uh, but then he points out the black family has not been able to survive the welfare state. Uh, that it is statism more than racism that has undermined the black family. And I think that, that, that's, that's another helpful way I think for sort of processing this. Now, I think those problems that afflict black families, I think that's also what white families, Hispanic, I mean, it's, we're all in the same boat really. Uh, you know, we've all got this same issue, a family breakdown or the failure of families to form. But, um, that, that's an interesting way I think of isolating some variables and to see what's going on. Uh, And I think you
0: can see, uh, it's kind of one of those things where it's like this, this, certain, um, populace caught the disease as it were of fatherlessness sooner. Cause like you said, it's plaguing yeah. whites, it's plaguing Hispanics, it's plaguing everyone, but you can see what it's going to look like for the rest of Cause they, they, they kind of started down that path a little bit sooner. And so what you're seeing is that the, the, the outworking of, of all of this is, is basically what you're going to see in like a Detroit yeah,
1: you know, and it's, and maybe this goes the area you want to go, but it's it's almost become too easy to get out as well of a marriage, um, and I think there's something of seeing, like I saw my mom and dad really struggle to stay together because they went through a period where they didn't hardly speak, almost ten years, but they got through that ten year period and suddenly reconnected again, and it showed me that faithfulness of just being committed and saying we may not like each other right now but we're going to, you know, this is the family. This is what we do and ended up the last 10, 15 years of their lives in love in a way I had never seen as a child. And I just think even that is a good image for a kid to see parents willing to say, okay, the easy thing to do is just, we don't like each other. We're just going off and find happiness as opposed to, no, we may not like each other right now, but we're an institution of a family and we've got to stick together. We've got to make this work somehow. And there's a commitment level that I think too many young people grow up and don't understand what commitment really looks like.
2: Well, and a couple more things about that. Cause I do think that's, that's a significant issue. Yes. Couples that work through hard times that stay married report being much happier, you know, having gone through those hard times and survived them than divorced people do. Um, if you're just looking at happiness rates for what that's worth um, it's a divorce is another them before us issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, the, you know, it's kind of that line: staying together for the sake of the children. But that ought to be a real thing. Couples should stay together for yeah. the sake of the children. They're invested in these children. They need to do not just what they want, uh, but what is best for the children they have created. That 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 right. is an obligation you have.
0: And those two things are usually not mutually exclusive. And what I mean by that is, like, what's good for the children is actually probably good it for is. you, right? And God that's hasn't right. like that's right. You know, split up incentives, right? Like, well, if it's good for the kids, it's we're going to be real hard on you guys. But you got to do it for the kids. It's like, well, no. Yeah. We, we live in a society that, that is about instant personal individual gratification, individualism and, and, and that instant gratification. And so if two people hook up, they get married, they have a couple of kids and they're not getting along, like divorce is like something that's on the table. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, yeah, well, let's mm-hmm. just get divorced. No mm-hmm. fault. Divorce we will fu- follow the paperwork. Send them 200 bucks.
2: Boom. Let me throw a couple more things in this. I know you want to okay. move on, but let me throw a couple more no, things no, no, in this. No, 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 We talked about how we have financially incentivized um, the failure of families to form mm-hmm. with the welfare state. We have also financially incentivized divorce, particularly for women. Uh, women initiate something between 70 and 80% of the divorces that happen. So they, they uh, are much more likely to be the ones to initiate divorce proceedings. And part of the reason for that has got to be because we've— in most States in the U S financially incentivized women to do that, they, yeah. they, they've got, uh, you know, they will generally come out much better financially from a divorce than a man would. So yeah. men are disincentivized. So that's another thing to think about. I mean, the whole realm of family law is an area that, that, I think is in, very much in need I'll of reform that next week and 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 changing the divorce laws to be part of it i mean that is far more significant in my view than a lot of other things that a lot of conservative people spend their time focusing on is to get our marital norms our marital policies and laws to more closely conform to god's design for this institution i think that's that's critical yeah. but the one other thing i would say about that and and this goes back to what you're saying even about your parents and of course we've all seen this we all seen marriages that that were a real struggle um i can say this as a pastor the church has often done a very bad job giving men and women the tools that they need to live happily in marriage to understand what marriage is about to understand what it means to be a husband or what it means to be a wife what what men and women need from each other and desire from each other in a marriage relationship church has done a very bad job of discipling people in this area so i think a lot of the problems and i can say this again as a pastor from you know, speaking inside the church, a lot of these problems in our own circles, we brought on ourselves with really bad teaching or just a lack of teaching altogether on what it really takes to make a a, a husband wife relationship flourish and thrive.
0: Yeah. And that was actually where we were going next. And so um, I'll kind of tie up the, the part about the family. And I guess the, the the premise I know that I'm operating on, that I know Rich is operating on, that I'm pretty sure Ray is operating on, is that there's three spheres of government that God has created Um, there's there's family government, there's church government, and then there's a civil magistrate, which is what we all think of when we think of government, capital buildings and judges and presidents and you know, that kind of thing. But there's those two other institutions or systems of government that God has created. The family being one of them. Well, the breakdown of the family has a lot to do with how the church is teaching about the family and then how the civil magistrate is handling the family. And so With that no-fault divorce, if we didn't have laws in the books that made it so easy to get divorced, people, like, they hear that and they shudder because they didn't really understand what it was like before. Well, if those three governments are functioning under God the way that they're supposed to, neither institution getting more importance than the other, all kind of under God, submitted to God, functioning the way that they're supposed to, if the family is having problems and they try to go to the court and, and, and to a judge, the judge is like, okay, well, he's not beating you, she didn't cheat on you, um, you guys need to work it out. I'll talk to your pastor and you guys can start counseling, right? Like that's how it's supposed to work is those institutions working together. Yeah. The judge is like, well, I'm not gonna let you get a divorce. If you tried working it out, well, you should go see your pastor. And so the church is helping the family to stay together and the state is staying out of it. Right. And again, that's not to say that there aren't instances where there's abuse or, sure. you know, all these other things. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that is not what's happening right now. And, and it, and it's, it's full frontal assault, uh, on the family, either offensively or just from a r- responsive kind of state. So moving from the family in this, let's uh, talk about the church, uh, the pulpit, preachers, and and kind of the, the degradation is the word that comes to mind that's going on within what we would call Big Eva or modern evangelicalism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the softening of the American pastor, uh, the softening of the message, the, the softening of the gospel, all of that stuff, and how that's kind of playing into what we're seeing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think all those things are are definitely happening. Uh, I think that we we have um, obviously the family is in crisis. I think we could say that the, the 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 civil government is in crisis. I think we have a church in crisis. I, I think there's no doubt, and that's true even if you sort of bracket out, say, mainline liberal churches that are mostly dying. Even if you just focus on, say, uh, what we might call the evangelical church. I'm you know I'm Reformed. I'm in the Presbyterian tradition, but I I see it in my own circles. Uh, so even if you bring it down to a very narrow focus to people who would seem to be, you know, at least on paper, very theologically like-minded, you see a crisis. I think a cultural crisis. I think a lot of this is due to cowardice, just an unwillingness to. I mean, you know, we love to be loved and we hate to be hated, mm-hmm. and we all want approval. And so, if 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 the world is pressing really hard in one area, uh, it's very easy. For the church to compromise or go soft in that particular area, because that, that's what's. And, and one way that, that I think you've seen this is it, it is very common today for pastors to attack white supremacy. Yeah. Okay. And very common for those same pastors to basically ignore or marginalize sexual issues, sexual sins. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I think it's because they're pandering. It's because yeah. the, the, the world is attacking racism, but the world is glorifying sexual autonomy. And so the response of many in the church is to say, well, uh, yes, white, you know, it takes real guts to stand against white supremacy today. And, and, and you know, we need the church to stand against white supremacy. Well, the reality is there are white supremacists out there. I don't doubt that at all. Yeah. But that's a pretty marginalized group. I mean, that's not a group that has a lot of clout or power or influence. And so condemning them doesn't really take any courage. Yeah. Uh, but the flip side of that is that if you want to take on the idol of sexual autonomy, That will get you in a lot of trouble. And so you'll have pastors who will say things like, Well, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about racism, but it whispers about sexual sin. I was
0: just about to say that. I'm
2: sorry, it does not whisper about sexual sin. And if you say that, I think you've probably disqualified yourself as a pastor because (laughs) I mean the Bible I read says fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Uh Romans 1 is pretty specific. I mean, yeah, there's (laughs) just, I mean, and it's not that it's not that this, you know, sexual sin is unforgivable. Or I mean, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying uh the bible takes lots of sins really seriously all sin is serious so uh, we shouldn't minimize any sin but when you see pastors minimizing the same sins that the world is celebrating that tells you there's something else going on it's not just preaching the word it's pandering to the world and that's a huge issue
1: and you brought up a great point there too i think when you see the church attacking the same sins that the culture at large is attacking then you're probably not in the right place you need to be in because now you are sort of pandering to the culture yeah. and not addressing the 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 meat and potatoes of what uh the gospel of what Christ is supposed to do in all of our lives to change that. Yeah,
2: that's right. That's right.
1: And I think COVID was a um
0: what what is the best way to it was like what do they call those things a litmus test. Yeah. COVID was a great litmus test to really see what your pastor and your church was made of. I think, yeah. I think uh, every, you know, cause and, and again, in the beginning, nobody knew. So anyone's right. initial response, it, it could be all over the board. The first month would say of COVID. Some people may have aired this way. Some people may have aired that way. Some people may have just hit it right where they should have. But after about a month, I think everyone could have been like, okay, we're being had here. This is ridiculous. You can't tell the church that it's going to shut down, um, you know, masking. I mean, all that stuff, um, it, 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 you know, again, in the beginning, I, I have grace and it's like, look, you know, this, this blindsided us all. We didn't know what it was. Da, 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 da. Um, but, man, you know, there's probably churches still today that are making people wear masks, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, all that other stuff. So I think it was almost like, you know, obviously, COVID was very much a curse. But oftentimes in those type of things, you can see that silver lining. And I think that silver lining really was. You know what is the foundations that my church is really built on? Do I have a courageous pastor who is willing to ward off wolves and false teaching and 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 to stand courageously against cultural onslaught and everything else? And so it wasn't just, uh, uh, you know, a respiratory disease that came sweeping through. It was like there was riots, you know, on Black Lives Matter riots, LGBT stuff, and so it wasn't just a respiratory illness that came sweeping through. It was like all this stuff. And I remember my pastor, uh, Pastor Brandon Scroggins. I mean, he was like, man, we're getting hit with everything. So he's Sunday teaching on this Wednesday, teaching on that Sunday. And I mean, and and this, he got stacks and stacks of books on um, like Slaying Leviathan by Glenn Sunshine and like going through all the different biographies of our founders and reading, uh, you know, John Locke and just like all this stuff so that he could really actually shepherd our flock through this stuff, knowing what our country was founded on, knowing the biblical roots that our country was founded on, and being able to apply those things to what's going on right now. And not a lot of pastors did that. They just kind of like, what is the WHO telling us to do? What's the CDC recommending? You know, and and then, yeah. yeah, that's what we're yeah. going to do. Um, anyway,
1: I, well, I think I'm think, ranting at this part point. Part of that too, though, I think there's a great push. We're really getting in a church situation now here. <laughs> I have to say, I'm always very careful to criticize church because church is the bride of Christ, and I don't want anybody insulting my bride. Yeah. And I don't want to insult the bride of Christ. But the little C church, the organizational aspects of it, I think, are things we can talk about. Uh, and, and I do think sometimes it, to, to be relevant becomes such a key word and a challenge for pastors in an effort to be relevant. They're getting away from what's necessary, what's truth, what really needs to be preached to people. And I think that gets watered down a lot and that sense of relevance to connect with people because I want my church to grow as opposed to just preach the gospel and get into what the truth
2: is well as as far as COVID goes i will say i was very thankful well of course i'm very thankful to live in alabama anyway but it was it was a time when i became especially appreciative of living in this state because i don't think it was nearly as difficult for most churches in our state to open up early uh as it was i mean you know there are places where it took a lot more courage to open up your church early than it did in alabama where uh you know we just had much friendlier laws and whatnot in most of the state but but but, the larger issue here, uh, you know just if you look at sort of the lar- the, the big picture here, uh, what's going on I you know as a as a pastor who preaches every Sunday, I listen to a lot of other preachers, you know um, and and one thing that I uh, would say I have seen in preaching across denominations that I think is very problematic is what I would call, and this is a big theological word, but antinomian preaching. Mm-hmm. so. Anti-nomos, nomos is the Greek word for law. Against the law, um, it, it is preaching that uh, does not teach obedience to God's law, and that does not uh, spell out the specifics of what God requires of us in His Word. And obviously, you know, as as Christians, we would say the foundation of everything is God's grace. It is God, you know, our salvation is by God's grace from beginning to end. It's all. What Jesus did for us—that's our only hope. We 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 pin our hopes to Jesus alone. That's it. But uh, Jesus not only forgives my sins; he also makes me new. Jesus not only declares me righteous; he also transforms me, so I begin to live a righteous life. And I think there is a lot of preaching out there today that uh, preaches grace. In such a way that it dilutes that 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 second aspect of it. And so you don't really get the transformed life. It's more like, well, yeah, God's word requires all of these things, but you really can't do them anyway. Just be thankful that Jesus did them for you. Okay. That that's actually not preaching the gospel. That's preaching an antinomian message. It needs to be Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins, and you're always going to fall short in this life. Your sins always covered by his blood but he's also given you his spirit to make you new, to empower you, to live a life of a courageous and faithful obedience to him. Mm. And let me tell you what that looks like. And, And that's where the use of the law for the Christian comes in. It's not just that it exposes our sin and shows us that we can't save ourselves. It also shows us how God wants us to live. And far too much preaching today pits grace Against law, and it never gets to that use of the law where the law actually right. fills out how God wants us to live our lives, and, and how God wants us—you uh, know—not just to live as individuals, but how He wants us to live in our families, in our in our societies. It's really interesting. Deuteronomy six, the Shema—it's um, it, it, a, it's a, it's, uh, Israel's basic confession of faith about the oneness of God, and then of course it gives—it goes from there to the Great Commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it goes from there to teaching these things to your children saturating your children in the Word of God and then it says that the Word of God is to be on our hands to govern what we do it's to be on the front lines of our eyes it's to it's to, it's to govern the way we see and interpret and act in the world it's to be on uh, the doorframes of our houses to govern family life it's to be on our on, on the on the city gates to govern public life as well if we love God we will be seeking to um, teach god's law in such a way that it will be obeyed in all of life and yeah. that's crucial and i don't think churches today are doing that very much yeah. man
0: <laughs> that gets me all fired up uh and you think about it uh, in deuteronomy 6 um what you know that's the passage that a lot of people go to go to for parenting at least i hope yeah. that they do yeah. And it says, teach these things to your children, you know, when when you're sitting in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So that's t- always be Absolutely. teaching them. Right, 24-7. And, and then it says, well, w- well, what? And then Deuteronomy literally means the law again. That's right. what Deuteronomy right. means. Second law. In Deuteronomy 5, you know, they come up uh, to cross the Jordan, and God says to Moses, teach them the law again. Tell them the law again. And so he literally repeats the Ten Commandments again, goes through the Ten Commandments again with all of the Israelites, and then says, teach these things to your children. And so this idea of not teaching the law... And then furthermore, going to the New Testament, um, and it's the the most quoted thing ever, is the the Great Commission. And I'm, I'm probably going to butcher it off the top of my head, but it's it, it says, go therefore. They always forget what the therefore is Therefore, It says, oh. you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, um, basically disciple the nations and teach them all that I've committed, or baptize them. See, yeah, I told you I would butcher Thank yeah. you, you it. Thank yes, you, Ready? Yes, baptizing
2: them and teaching them all that I have That's commanded That's the part that they forget. Okay. They never say that part. And, and I brought my Bible with me today. I'm a pastor. Yeah. I always got my Bible with me. <laughs> um, what did Jesus command? This whole book. Yes. Okay. Forget your red letter edition. This yes. whole book is the word of Jesus yeah. to us. So to teach them everything he commanded means to teach them the whole counsel of God, the yeah. whole word of God.
0: And there will never be anybody who butchered the Great Commission more than me right there. That was awful. But it, but, but that is the point that I was making, is that they never say what the therefore is Therefore, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They don't ever say that. It's always go therefore, you know, and disciple the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they just stop. It says, and then teach them all that I've commanded, right? right and Jesus right, says, right. if you love me, you will do what I commanded. And it's just over and over and over and over. And I do think that that... Um, that um, I want to say autonomy, that's not, what is the, the antinomian? So that the antinomian teaching, teaching right. as if there right. was no law. Right. Let's go ahead and make more people mad while we're at it. Um, <laughs> so I also think that we, we talk about seeker-sensitive churches, and you know, obviously antinomian preaching is really good for seeker-sensitive. I think it's gone a step further and into being relevant. In order for pastors to be relevant, they have, <laughs> this is going to be fun, they have to placate and play to women because, for whatever reason, the men have abdicated. It's kind of like chicken and egg. The men have stopped going to church, you know. So there's women. So so pastors, you know, they don't they don't preach to the women, but they preach for the women. I guess the message and the music and everything is curtailed to effeminate. Preferences, right? Which then drives the men even farther out. And so I don't know whether which one came first. Mm-hmm. I've heard that in World War II, that's when it started because all the men were over there and more. I, I don't know if that's true or not. But either way, basically trying to entertain and keep the women happy has created a type of effeminate worship that has driven manly men away. Um, and it's like this vicious cycle of continuing to placate and, and play to, to women rather than just preaching the Bible.
2: Yeah, I think in American history, uh, I think Ann Douglas's book, The Feminization of American Culture, I think is what it's called. Uh, I think she does a pretty good job of tracing this out. And um, it's interesting because she actually thinks that the feminization of American culture was good in every single area except for religion, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is, I mean, she's not a believer. Uh, You know, I I would quarrel with certain aspects of her thesis. But as a historian, she's got a lot of interesting things to say. But she traces this back to the 19th century and that that is really when. kind of this idea arose that women are spiritual women are angelic and, and men are demonic and, and it's up to women to, you know, tame and civilize and domesticate the men and sort of put this responsibility on the women. And, and, you know, and the men were, uh, you know, out, you know, carousing and, and, and doing all kinds of things. And it would be the women who would, and I'm not saying there wasn't some truth to that, to the way things were at that point in society, but that's where this idea came from that women are angels and men are devils. And that worked itself out kind of the, the, the zenith of that influence in America was prohibition. Yeah, It was really women who drove prohibition right. because they saw so many men as drunkards and they, and that was, that was their way of dealing with it. Um, so uh, this, this whole idea that, that church is for, um, women, uh, I think really, really the seeds of that were very much planted in 19th century America, uh, where, um, church became a thing for women, children, and and of course the clergy were considered the third sex. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 and yes, there was, there was a very deaf, you know, um, pastors started to write their sermons, largely targeting women. They wrote books that largely, and, and, and again, you know, feminine piety was especially privileged uh, feminine forms of piety were especially privileged. Uh, so, um, and and you mentioned World War II. I think actually you can go back to to the, to the Civil War where this really starts. You know, it's kind of in the yeah. aftermath of that where this really starts to be an issue: the feminization of the church. And it's important to understand. Obviously, that was bad for men, as you said. It drove men away from the church. It was also bad for women. Yeah. It's also bad for women. So, um, yeah, that and that's something that I think is very much still with us today. I think it looks a little bit different today, certainly than it did. Uh, in the nineteenth century or, or even in the twentieth century,, uh, but it's still very much an issue, this whole idea that um I mean, that you know, so much of the church music today is sort of Jesus is my girlfriend type music. Yeah, make it out so much of the, the preaching so much of the preaching is now therapeutic rather than an authoritative declaration of the gospel and 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 god's God's demands, God's requirements for his people. Uh, so I think the you know the preaching is much more. Uh, tends to be much more full of self doubt and questioning than you know some kind of of a very straightforward proclamation like what you would have seen more historically. So yeah, yeah, man, worship has become a very emotional experience. It really has. It, it's it's really not just the feminization; it's the juvenilization. Yeah. yeah, Uh It is it is worship has been um, it's very childish, and and this comes in really with the second Great Awakening and uh, the rise of um, the revivals, which often used a lot of gimmicks, quite frankly, to try to get people to the big tent and that kind of thing. And then it was very emotionally driven, trying to get people to have an emotional experience so that they can uh, make a, you know a a, um, a a commitment right then and there of some sort,, uh, you know, to Christ. Um, and and that kind of thing, of course, became sort of the norm for a lot of youth ministry. and then those youth grew up and they said, well, we want this in church as well. And so you got, I'd say not just the feminization, but the juvenilization of, of no American. Mature, lack of maturity. Lack yeah. of maturity. That's yeah. really what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and
1: yeah. and it is. It's, it's you know, you brought up a great one of my pet peeves too. Is too many of our worship songs have no theology to That's them. That's right. That's right. And you could you could substitute God for a name
2: yeah, of of, right.
1: of your husband or you know whatever and it fits. And They're I,
2: almost entirely a mode of describing not who God is and what he's done but how I feel right or or what God can do for me. Well, that's, that's it. you know that's God it.
1: does this for me. I, God you you want this from I'm I'm the height of your creation. No, we're created to worship God yep. to, to to glorify him. Uh, anyway, that's a, I mean, uh, that, that, that's another, I mean, another topic, but but yeah the the, yeah.
2: the 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 effeminate and childish nature of modern American worship, I think is a big issue, yeah, certainly, which brings us to psalm singing while we're on all this other <laughs> stuff right no um
0: so something that I've discovered through um the few times I visited your church and just again it's it's really getting back to the the historicity there's a big big Craig word we'd call that in in eighteen nineteen um but going back to the historical roots of church, you know um And you look at you know psalms were like you know and it literally says in the Bible psalms hymns and spiritual songs that's what we're supposed to sing well we get the hymns and spiritual songs we're good with that but we don't we don't like the the psalms and so you look at the psalms and the psalms are relatively masculine right it's it's King David in a lot of them Um, the imprecatory psalms you're talking about God you know crush their teeth and you know defeat my enemies and all this other stuff. And you put that to music, and you sing it as a church, and you begin to see God, and uh, you know, is 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 a very masculine God, and you see Christ as a, a warrior king, and all these other things, because that's the way that the Bible describes Him, right? And, and if David was a man after God's own heart, and David killed thousands of people, again, uh, but it's 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 not the image of Christ that we have in our heads is it's not the one that that the Bible paints, and so that is also reflected in our music. Like you were saying, the kind of, you know, Jesus is my girlfriend type music that we hear on Caleb and stuff like that. Again, rules and exceptions, that doesn't mean everything on Caleb's terrible, but as a generalization, um, it is very uh, effeminate. And so um, how do you think that has affected um, kind of our, our, our outlook uh, as Christians?
2: Yeah, I, I preached on Psalm 110 last week. And so we sang a metrical version of it. it you know, it's not quite the same as, as chanting it as God wrote it, but we did read it and we, we sang a metrical version of it. And this is what's interesting. Psalm 110 is a psalm about the enthronement of the priest king. It's a it's a uh, a Davidic king, uh, but one that David says is my Lord. So that tells you something. Jesus uses this in Matthew 22 to stump the Pharisees. How can you have know, the, if the, if the Christ is, uh, David's son. Why does David call him my Lord? Very interesting question. Uh, and and it also describes a priest after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priest. So it's describing this coming Messiah, this coming Christ, who will be the King and priest over all. And in that Psalm, it also describes him as one who executes kings, who crushes the heads of many countries. I mean, the Psalm starts off with this really interesting trinitarian. Uh, you know, with the father speaking to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then it ends with a pile of dead bodies, basically. That's <laughs> yeah. uh, how it looks. Now, I think the judgment imagery there is 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 uh, open-ended. I think it could be uh, judgment unto conversion or it could be judgment unto destruction. I mean, when when God converts us, he kills the old man and brings to life the new man. Amen. So there's a sense in which you could say the uh, the 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 killing there could be followed by making alive, and I think that's that's how the imprecato- that's part of what's going on in those imprecatory psalms. Um, but yeah, that that Psalm one ten. This is what's interesting to me, and I, I pointed this out in my sermon. It is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. So if you ask, okay, what what in the New Testament? What were the what were Jesus and the apostles? What what scripture did they gravitate to the most? It was Psalm one ten, referenced more than any other Old Testament passage in the New and yet it is a psalm, a psalm full of victory and a psalm full of judgment, and the vast majority of Christians do not know it. We know Psalm 23 because it's comforting. You know, We maybe know a handful of other psalms, but Psalm 110, the one that is quoted the most, is one that I would guess that Christians are most ignorant of today. And I think that tells you there's something really wrong, and certainly getting back to the psalms could, could, could help us with that.
0: So sit in my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool. That Psalm 1 that's is that right? That's right. So, um, let's talk about optimism. Why should Christians have hope? Um, I think that's how we'll finish. I think, um, and again, I'm not going to get into all the different eschatological fine tuned positions and everything else, and da 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 da, and it triggers everything else. But I think overall, um, let's talk about just
2: the 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 lens of victory that we should be looking mm-hmm, through that mm-hmm. the Bible gives us. Well, you, just, that yeah, you just cited Psalm 110.1, yeah. and there's a, that's a reason for optimism. Jesus yeah. is seated at the Father's right hand as king and priest right now, and he's reigning until all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Uh, and you look at the way that passage is is used in the New Testament, you can see that's clearly what's happening right now. That's basically Paul's philosophy of history, his outlook on history in 1 Corinthians 15. But let me go back to the other issues we've talked about and kind of okay. tie, tie that in with this. Um, I think that it would be entirely understandable for Christians in America in 2022 to be short-term pessimists. Um, there are reasons for optimism, things like the potential for Roe to be overturned. I mean, things like that could be very significant. Uh, but there, there are certainly a lot of. Uh, reasons to be a short-term pessimist. But I think we ought to remain long-term optimists. The ultimate reason for that is the promises of Scripture, because every promise we have or picture we have in Scripture of the kingdom of God is of something that grows. So there's that. But just in terms of these issues we talked about related to the family and all of that, this is what I would say. Think of history as a wisdom contest. History, David enters into a wisdom contest in the beginning of, of the book of Daniel. So, so this is something that you have in Scripture. But think of history as a wisdom contest. It's a contest between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. Uh, those who live according to the world's wisdom are going to rebel against God's design. They're going to think that with their technology and their ideology, that they have absolute freedom and autonomy and can do whatever they want. And what's going to happen is they're going to crash into reality. Uh, because, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro's got that line, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, I mean, you know, there, I, my line is there's this thing called reality and you ought to check in with it every now and then yeah. <laughs> because it, God made the world a certain way. He made it this way and not that way. And we don't conform ourselves to, uh, to his design uh, for human life. Bad things happen. Uh, and again, we're seeing a lot of that, that bad fruit being born in, uh, in, in our nation, and our culture right now. But if you think of history as a wisdom contest, Worldly wisdom is always going to lose because it does not work. When Paul's talking about the, um, he's talking about the last days, which I think is probably the last days of the old covenant. In what well, I think it's 2 Timothy three, but he talks about the various manifestations of their wickedness, and then he says they will not make very much progress. Well, why won't they make much progress? They won't make much progress because sin doesn't work, uh, stupidity doesn't work, rebelling against God's design, foolishness doesn't work. In the long run, God's ways, God's wisdom works. I'm not turning us into pragmatists here. I'm just saying when you live in accord with the divine design, good things ultimately happen. Good things flow from that. And so if you think of history as a wisdom contest, rebelling against the way God made the world, which is what we see many in our culture today doing, is not going to work. It's going to lead to futility and frustration living according to god's design is going to bring ultimate happiness prosperity joy a peace that passes understanding there's going to be good fruit that's born from that and uh, i think we ought to be long-term optimists for just that reason
1: my my brother uh, and i've told this to my kids my, my brother taught me a lesson when i was small well not i was in high school we were working on a car putting an engine together and i was trying to force this last piece into place and my brother looked at me and said don't force it. It's meant to fit together a certain way to work right. the right way. If you have to force it, you've done something wrong. Back out and start over. That's sort of been something I've taught my kids. And I think that's exactly that's right. exactly right. We're meant to operate in a certain way, and we try to force things into that. It only leads to more having things going wrong or having to force things again. And it, it's uh, it's that principle. Yeah, well, right. it's, it's created to work a certain way. We need to find what that certain way is, and then things fit together and work the way they're supposed to.
0: That's good. What is uh your Sunday school lesson that you taught about God's plan coming together?
1: Yeah, well, it's something I, I say a lot, and it's that long term optimism that that the world is not falling apart. God's plan is coming together, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. as believers, we you know we look at right now and we go, "Oh my gosh, this is terrible," and I'm going, "Oh my gosh, this somehow God's plan is working here," <laughs> and we just got to look for that to see where it's working. Amen. Uh, well, this has been good. I could probably go on for another couple of days. Um, <laughs> and
0: we'll definitely have to have um, Pastor Rich come back. Uh, thank you for um, spending some time with us.
2: Appreciate it.
0: Pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church off of 119 and 280. Uh, if uh, you're watching this and you're just like, man, you don't like where you're going to church, you're not going to church. Either. Are you online? I mean, people who are not we in the
1: are. area might want to see we are online. I want to plug yeah. it for you. YouTube. So I know that, yeah.
0: yeah. You can go yeah. watch, listen to a sermons on YouTube. Do you have a like, podcast or anything?
2: I, I don't have a podcast. We've yeah, got a website that. that's got a lot of resources. Okay. So people can yeah. look up that.
0: There you go. Yeah. Um, well, good stuff. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Um, again, tell you guys where you can find us 1819news.com. Press the subscribe button, sign up for the newsletter, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Sign up there. Um, until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.